This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Are you looking to engage with regional decision makers, business leaders, elected officials, and industry professionals committed to improving downtown San Diego? Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership. As a member, you'll receive access to exclusive resources, exposure to special programming, networking functions, and additional opportunities unmatched by any other local membership-based organization. Join the driving forces behind the future of downtown San Diego. For a 10% discount, become a member today. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by the... Managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Luis. It's good to be back. Good. (laughs) I'm glad to have you. (laughs) I'm reporter Jacob McQuinney. What's up, Jacob? No, just doing my best not to be pathetic over here. I have uh, something to ask you or to tell you. Okay, I'm listening. I I saw your tweet last night. Uh, (laughs) You didn't like it. I'm going to read it. I have something to tell you. Okay? What did you tweet? Okay. Okay. He, he said, I have a movie idea. <laughs> Basically, it's a standard basketball movie with the underdogs and ups and downs and gritty character building, but it all takes place in an underground bunker in a post-nuclear war world. The bunker part isn't the focus, though. It's just about basketball. All right, so I have two things to tell you. <laughs> I mean, well, first off, I think it's a pretty brilliant idea for a movie. Hold on. Did you, you didn't I'm gonna, read, I'm gonna you didn't tell read the follow-up tweet though okay the follow-up tweet is it'd be like space jam but without all the dead weight cartoon characters aliens michael jordan bill murray but also underground because the world's been blown up here i have two things to tell you one is you can't just have the scene without the scene being part of the plot like otherwise it's just it's just a, a a basketball movie that's exactly what it is. It's a basketball movie. It just okay. happens to be underground. Okay, we can go into that, but okay. here's what I really want to okay, tell you. Okay. It's okay to like basketball, Jacob. Oh, I love basketball. It's okay to like basketball, Jacob. <laughs> you don't have to put a reminder of your fear of the dissolution of civilization <laughs> okay. on it. You can just enjoy basketball. But you just wanted to love basketball, but you feel the obligation to say like, but I also understand that the world is falling apart. I, I feel the obligation to to let the world know about the, this rad idea for a movie 
where people are playing basketball and dunking, but it just happens, the world just happened to have ended. And that's not really important. That's not the focus. That's not important, you know? It would have to eventually. Uh, it just doesn't work otherwise. It has to play in. I, you're not writing this movie, How Scott, many movies okay? have you produced? In my head, I, I many. I happen to <laughs> be you, Scott. a connoisseur of dystopian <laughs> future fiction. Okay. Coming up on the show this week, last week, Will Hunsberry reported that some residents in southeastern San Diego had lost trust with the city after the flooding there were conspiracy theories going around, and it was hard to debunk them. Staff at the mayor's office called that reporting, quote, dangerous. We'll review their claims. And Chida Warren Darby is also talking about trust. She's a city council candidate who also works for the mayor. I called her up last week to check in on the city council race that could be decided in March to see where she stands on current issues. The police officers endorsed her. For instance, what's her response to that and her thoughts about it as she seeks a critical council seat? And teacher layoffs are coming. Jacob's going to explain how the district got here and how leaders want to handle a big budget deficit looming. Finally, the newest edition of the Parents Guide to San Diego Schools is flying off the shelves. The metric we created analyzing school test scores within the context of the income level of the families going to that school has gotten national attention unlike ever before. We're excited about that. We'll explain what that metric can tell us about school success. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. But first... The cool kids in this town love to make fun of the show Anchorman and all the people who use Anchorman to describe our cities. But <laughs> this week, it was a very Anchorman moment <laughs> when China announced that the San Diego Zoo would get pandas again and the whole place blew up. The mayor tweeted or put on, on Instagram, it's pandemonium. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's out of their mind excited that the pandas are coming. The return of panda diplomacy, uh, according to USA Today. Everybody's excited about the pandas. And the, the, the news showed up as required at the San Diego Zoo for this moment. Uh, you know, we can make fun of that movie all we want. But there were a couple of points that it got right, and we have to deal with that. And that's one of them. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm pretty underwhelmed by people's obsession with pandas. I, I don't, I don't necessarily understand it. My Sri Krishna used to work here had a very hot panda take that they are lazy, worthless uh, bears. Yeah, I hope it's okay for me to relate that <laughs> on her behalf. But I, I, it provoked me to realize that yes, in fact, they are very lazy. Well, they do seem like just a evolutionary an uh, anomaly i mean how did those things get to, i think to it, now i don't understand it i think that the whole animal kingdom all the bacteria all the viruses <laughs> all of all the other together. competing animals the predators and the prey all decided that's a cute <laughs> animal we will let it be lazy we will let it do its thing and stumble around yeah. and eat and then just sit there because look at how cute it is, and I think that was, I think it was a, a moment of consciousness. Mm, it was like a Bengal tiger of, of the in the collective anaconda, animal kingdom, yeah, like cruising around the jungle, and the Bengal's about to go for the panda, and the anaconda's like, no, yeah, it's look, cute. Look at that hey, guy. did you hear about the pack? <laughs> <laughs> we have a pack. You it's need the panda truce. Huh? Yeah. Do you think that there is like a? Do you think that China 
Chinese officials determine where to send which pandas by like how entertaining those pandas are. They're like, okay, we really like the Netherlands right now. So we're going to send them like our number one starting, you know, panda. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the panda diplomacy is a whole thing. I bet you could find a book on it. I bet you there's a whole department at the CCP <laughs> that's like dedicated towards deploying pandas strategically. And then everybody in San Diego is like, bring it. We're in. Yeah. CCP. Chinese Top communist pandas. But how do we know what level of panda we got? That's my question. Well, we'll see. Huh? When we get a chance to meet him. We got to go. <laughs> we'll do like a team, yeah. a team visit to the zoo <laughs> <laughs> for reporting purposes. We have a few updates we're going to run through. One of them is that Andrea Cardenas and her brother Jesus Cardenas were hit with a lot of criminal charges last year, and now a couple more have come, and she has decided to resign. So she said she wouldn't resign. She's still on the ballot, but she is resigning, and that comes after District attorney, prosecutors announced that they were adding two more charges to the lengthy list of charges against them. So remember, Andrea Cardenas is a city councilwoman in Chula Vista. Her brother, Jesus Cardenas, and her have long run a very powerful South Bay political consultancy and helped with campaigns, lobbying, and other things. And they were accused by the district attorney last year of basically applying for those emergency PPP loans uh, during the pandemic. And those were designed to protect businesses who kept their employees on the payroll. And it basically was a loan, but you didn't have to pay back the loan as long as you kept the employees employed. Mm -hmm. And they did that, except they didn't have any employees. They did it using the employees of a cannabis dispensary <laughs> that they worked with and they kept the money and used some of the money for her council candidate campaign. Mm -hmm. So that's the accusation. They haven't, you know, had their time in court and she said, look, we're gonna, I'm, you know, I'm gonna be validated here, vindicated if I can go through the process and that's why I'm gonna stay in this role. Uh, something's changed since then and she's now out. Mm -hmm. And her colleagues were asking her to resign right when those charges were brought. But, you know, she had said she was going to stay. I think there's a couple of council meetings where she just wasn't showing up, right? Yeah. Do Do we have any idea of what it means that she's still on the ballot? I mean, could she have, could she resign and then win her seat back? I mean, w w this is all, very, that's very, the most confusing part to me. Um, well, we're trying to figure out what would happen in that case, but we do know that the Chula Vista City Council basically has to meet, which they're planning on doing next week, and officially declare her seat as vacant. And then after they do that, they have 45 days to appoint someone to her seat. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure if you know if they can't decide who to appoint, what happens then. Her term ends in December. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll keep looking for answers. Do you think Amar's in the running? Yeah, the the most famous naval reservist in the world. Who 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 else? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be we'll be paying attention to this electoral Schrodinger's cat situation. So I used to get phone calls all the time from Mike Geary, former city attorney of the city of San Diego, and he when he was really 
excited about something. He had a phrase he would say all the time, uh, punches and bunches, punches and bunches, baby. <laughs> like he'd have something going. Oh, and, uh, that's, that's and a cool. <laughs> he called wow. me up. He called me up and, I, and I saw his name come up and I was like, hey, it's punches and bunches. And he said, <laughs> he said, ah, I got something for you. And it turns out he is now the attorney for Larry Turner, the mayoral candidate who is uh, a police officer running against the incumbent, Todd Gloria, and of course, uh, the other competitors in that race, including Genevieve Jones-Wright. So Mike Aguirre is representing Turner in that case where uh, Turner's been accused or the mayor's friends argue that he does not or had not a properly established residency mm-hmm. within the city of San Diego before he filed to run for mayor. Mm. You're supposed to have a place that you live and, and register to vote there 30 days before you declare that you're going to run. He did that, but his place of residence was the condo owned by his campaign manager, Giorgio Crelio. So Giorgio is a, a very interesting guy. Giorgio is a former Marine, just like Larry Turner. He rose to prominence in, in, in the or notoriety, however you want to put it, during the sort of COVID uh, mass uh, outrage about vaccines and about the shutdowns. And mm-hmm. he's this very muscled dude. And uh, yeah. he, he, he had an Instagram post recently where he uh, wanted to protest the protesters at the rodeo. Yeah, and he in did front it, of Peco Park. And he did it by uh, eating or buying 25 protein-style hamburgers from In-N-Out and then doing- Double doubles. And, and a shake. And, and, a, and a shake. And then doing push-ups after each patty was consumed. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and he later reported that that made him ill. Yes. <laughs> it is like a full- it's just it's hard it's, it's storytelling like it's it's it, there's like dark moments and you're with him on this journey <laughs> yeah where like he's halfway and you know he can't he just feels like he can't keep going he's questioning his manhood but then he like rallies yeah, and then running out of milkshake where people come and do push-ups with yeah, him i mean like, it was there's solidarity there's the cops kick him out yeah. there's yeah. a brilliance to to uh, to the entire video and social media though the, i am concerned with him doing push-ups on the floor with his hands on the floor and then eating the burgers immediately. That might have been what made him sick. That was the, the most frightening thing for me. I did not see any sort of hand washing or hand sanitizer. Maybe that was edited if, out. We don't he, know. But I, yeah. I don't know if the I don't know if hand sanitizer is something that he like has a religious objection <laughs> if to. If I was but. in and out, I would be like, that's probably what made you sick, the <laughs> yeah. touching of the floor. Otherwise twenty five of our patties would <laughs> our have been burgers fine. are good, man. <laughs> anyway, the Larry Turner, the police officer running for mayor, would have us believe that he's living or lived with this uh, Giorgio, uh, and now he lives in Ocean Beach, but uh, really only matters where he lived then. The city is going to have to decide if this works out. The mayor and his allies want him off the ticket. Uh, Mike Geary successfully got the judge to agree that they won't have a hearing about this question until March 29th, and March 29th is after the primary, and uh, I guess the reason everybody was okay with that was because the city argued, hey, look, if you guys decide that he wasn't eligible and he gets to the runoff, if he's second place or first place in the primary, then we can just take the next candidate down. No problem. Let's just do it next month. So that was how that was resolved this week. 
Okay, so I have a question. If you don't know the answer, you know, don't be like sad. That's okay. <laughs> you know, we're all humans. But what should we take from the fact that the mayor's friends or people who support Mayor Todd Gloria have chosen to even bring this up? There's sort of two ways to answer that, I think. On the one hand, you could obviously conclude that they don't want to run against him in the runoff. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, there might be sort of two related reasons for that. One might be that they're afraid he would win. And I'm sure that's what Larry Turner would say. Mm -hmm. The second is they, I think a, a big motivator, the mayor does not want to run a runoff campaign that's hard. And I think that they believe that other candidates would be easier to beat. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in particular, they're trying to promote the... Republican, uh, Jane Glasson, who has no money, has raised no money, has no website, that they can easily beat her and they're promoting her in mailers across the city right now. So uh, I think that's what's going on. Uh, but I, but they, are, they are very, the, the, the direct conclusion that they don't want to run against Larry Turner is unavoidable here. Now, why they don't want to run against him is, you know, maybe something you could debate or try to get into their heads about, but that's uh, clearly what they're trying to do is keep him off the ballot because they don't want to run against him. Mm. Mm. Well, good for Micah Geary. Bunches and bunches. So last week we had uh, senior investigative reporter Will Huntsbury on the show and he talked about the story that he ended up putting up later that day about southeastern San Diego and residents there that had really become upset and distrustful about the city of San Diego, the county of San Diego, basically government, and what happened to their community on January 22nd when the floods hit and they lost, a lot of them lost everything. And he talked to a bunch of people who were like, we feel like the city abandoned us, but they also, and as he tried to gather, like are starting to really believe, or several of them believe, that the city intentionally let their homes be flooded because otherwise, how would you explain why they never fixed um, some of the blockages and the channels and such? They knew this was going to happen. It happened. Um, now, obviously, we we never don't necessarily buy into that claim, but we did feel like it was important for the mayor and and everybody to be aware of of what people are saying and just this general lack of trust that's going on. We wrote that story. Uh, in the story, uh, Council President Shawnee Lo Rivera is in there. He says, "quote." Regardless of whether clearing the channels would have made a difference in preventing the floods, we should own the fact that communities affected were due a lot more than they've gotten, and I'm sorry for that to the extent that I'm responsible. Now, the mayor's office was not pleased <laughs> with our story, and so we decided to keep the conversation going and post some of their thoughts. Can you summarize, uh, Andrea, what they said? I think... If I were to take away like their main argument was that one, you could have reported a story, you could have written a story about people feeling this lack of trust and, you know, being upset, obviously, because they've gone through this traumatic event. Um, but they argued there was context missing from what those survivors were saying. So like there was a individual saying that um, firefighters were just sort of standing around while people were like basically drowning in their homes. And, um, you know, they wanted to make a point that 
like firefighters don't just or first responders don't just stand around and, you know, like allowing a quote like that would sort of give people the idea that like maybe it's not even worth calling 911. Um, I think that that idea and concept already exists with or without our story that some communities um you know, don't feel confident or don't trust or don't feel safe calling 911, but that's besides the point. Um, but yeah, it was mostly about like context. And so one of the quotes, which comes from um, Gloria's uh, director of communications, Rachel Lang, um, this is feedback to the story, is a quote, it is downright dangerous to give credence to the suspicion that when we urge people to take themselves and their kids out of their mold infested homes and accept our offers of hotel rooms, or alternative accommodations, we're doing it to further a nefarious plot to take their homes. Now, I think there she's obviously responding to this idea that people feel like the city didn't do anything or kind of let their homes, you know, or let channels get to the level that they were so that they would basically be washed out. I think she's interpreting it as like, it's crazy to say that like us urging people to take themselves from their homes now that this flood has happened is just because like we want to come in and steal their homes but that's not what residents have told will and that's not what they've been saying is that like if you look at the neglect if you look at their previous requests for a to clear the channels and fix the storm drains and fix uh, fix other issues in their communities like the only thing that can explain why government chose not to do that for them is that they don't want them there and you know we're just waiting for like a disaster like this to happen yeah, I, I think in general what they're like, you should have pointed out that these people were wrong mm-hmm. more clearly than you did. Mm-hmm. And they took particular offense to the opening of the story where Will's talking to a bunch of them underneath a carport and he says um, that he told them that, that uh, the mayor had, had been down there and they all burst out laughing because... Uh, they hadn't seen it. And here was Kinsey Moreland, one of the mayor's staffers, said, your story makes it seem as if the fact that we've been on the ground helping since day one is false. I get the fact that these people perceive it to be untrue for them, but the fact is our teams have been out connecting people to resources and services, 3,000 doors knocked, 498 completed surveys. We provided hotel rooms to temporarily house 765 adults, 394 children, and 255 pets. Now, I think Jacob took this back to one of the people that felt like they hadn't seen the council members. And, and uh, she said, this is Patty Alvarez, who lives in the area. She says, yeah, they've been by, uh, but it was a week too late. The majority of support we had from day one as a community was from the manpower of loved ones and friends. I think what's happening here is, is really just a, another version of the same story about this mayor and his staff for years now, which is that it's like with the homeless thing. There's a, always a lot of, there's no question, there's a lot of work being done on homelessness at the mayor's office. There's no question there's a lot of work being done about these floods at the mayor's office and in the city of San Diego. But it's not necessarily the people's fault for them not perceiving that you as a staff, as a mayor, are meeting the moment as far as what they're concerned about and that that you understand how tragic and um, traumatizing this whole experience has been and whether you are acknowledging the way that they might expect the city's own role and shortcomings in this. You can't say that 
we knew we needed to clean out that channel, uh, but we couldn't clean out that channel. And then clean out the channel after the flood has already happened and then expect them all to be like, okay, we understand you and all your work here. Good job. Thank you. Like they're upset. And there's just this consistent pattern of the mayor's office not being able to meet the moment with the with this the sort of leadership and standing that it demands and and i think that they don't perceive and it's not just that they're wrong or not paying attention or they have some bone to pick or they have a narrative they're trying to advance or an agenda or whatever that they aren't understanding just how hard you're working and how you're doing the best you can and it feels like the entire mayor's operation for the last four years has been this constant argument that we're doing the best we can. How come you don't recognize that? Mm-hmm. It's like, I, it's not my job to recognize that. Well, it also seemed like there was this, this frustration with, with wills not having, you know, proactively tried to do what is the communications people's job, which is say, Hey, you guys are wrong. This is what the mayor says. This is what the mayor's office says. I mean, that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was to uh, spark a conversation about how trust has been broken and, and how it is so broken that people are believing things that you know may or may not be true. Obviously, there's there's no current you know proof for for these conspiracy theories. Um, but at the same time, I mean, that's not <laughs> our job. Is not to parrot the mayor's talking points as journalists. It's it's not. And it's not it's not our job to, you know, try to convince these people of of what the mayor's team is, is saying. I think that the I think you're exactly right that there is a there's an ongoing belief that he is getting a the unfair shake here that he's just he just can't win, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's all the people on both sides of the homeless issue, for example, that are like, he just, he's being uh, ruthless and, and inhumane to the people who are living on the street with nothing. And then the other side, he doesn't care about the quality of life in our communities. And he's letting these, these tent encampments fester and this public safety crisis get worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and he's in the middle trying to do all these different things everywhere. And I think the common trait between both of them is that it doesn't feel like to either side that he recognizes and has acted with the with the uh, urgency that they would expect a leader to act with with mm-hmm. the profound crisis in the street. And I think that's the exact same thing has happened here. A thousand people, thousand families are displaced right now. And if that happened in any other community, it, it does feel like it would be considered more of an urgent crisis well and moreover it wouldn't happen in any other community right and so and and it doesn't and it obviously doesn't feel like to these people that he has met that moment with the urgency that would be expected Mm -hmm. in that situation and you only need to look at the fires from 2003 and 2007 and the covid crisis for moments when the city government really did show an immense amount of urgency, just a tremendous amount of collective uh, 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 emergency setting, right? A, A footing of like, everybody needs to mobilize. Here's all the things you need to do. Here's where you call if you want to help out. 
Here's where you uh, go if you're in trouble. Here's where um, uh, what we're going to do right now and tomorrow and then day in, day out, press conferences and and daily experience of that. And that just that hasn't been the case. Yeah, they had a couple press conferences. They've sent people out, but the moment hasn't been met. And that's and that's the core, I think, crisis of, of both of these situations. Yeah, I think what their interactions to me feel like they fail to recognize or are just out of touch with what people experience the day of. I think, you know, in Will's original story, he could have included these numbers on how many doors they have knocked and how many surveys have been completed and how many people they've put in homes. Yes. But that is all after the fact of January 22nd. And I think what people in that story, and if you read it, like I was reading it and I started crying when I read the part of someone holding their baby like over their head to keep their baby from drowning. Like I think when people think about this event and that day and how things unfolded and how neighbors were helping neighbors pull each other out of their homes. There's the guy we reported on who put on a wetsuit and swam through these waters. Um, you know, our intern Juan covered a press conference, community members talking about like what they experienced and how they had to jump into these dirty waters. Like that fact alone, like you didn't have floods of heavy rescue people, city staff there, like pulling people out of those homes. Like that to people is like city didn't show up. It doesn't matter that they knocked on so many doors, you know, the day after or the week after, like that's, that just doesn't matter. Like all they want to hear is we weren't there the day that you needed us there. And we didn't do the kind of preventative work that would have stopped it. Stopped it from happening. I I feel like at this point, you know, the mayor and and staff could, as soon as the waters receded, they could have moved heaven and earth and done whatever you know, they could to, to help these people, but I don't think it would have changed the simple fact that they weren't there. Yeah. So uh, one of the people I talked to about this as well, that I think her comments are kind of interesting. So Chida Warren Darby's running for city council uh, in the seat that Monica Montgomery Stepp vacated. She is running uh, primarily against Henry Foster, who Monica Montgomery Stepp endorsed. We've talked to him before, but she said, uh, look, a lot of individuals tried to call in and wanted things cleared in the creek, and I want to understand uh, and see where the break was in the process. I am very intrigued with the response time and the emergency plan. I'm still looking for that. I haven't seen it. Um, I'm not quick to say we did good or bad, but my expectation is that things would have happened a lot differently. Why did those calls go unanswered when people asked about the channels needing to be cleared, and how are we going to rebuild trust? I think this is a woman that works for the mayor who's saying like there there was trust broken. And so it's not just us like making this narrative up. This is his endorsed candidate and his employee in uh, an adjacent district to South Crest and, and Shelltown wondering what happened and why that trust was, was uh, broken there. I think um, there's just a lot of anger there. And I don't think it's going to change his election trajectory. Uh, but... Uh, I don't think neither he nor the county leaders have met this moment. And it feels like all of they're kicking it back and forth about who's responsible to take care of these people. When thousands of homes were burned down in Scripps Ranch, there was a place for them right away. 
and they they got their insurance, they got everything taken care of, and life moved on. Obviously, it was very traumatic to lose everything, but uh, there was a place for them to go, and the city was as mobilized as I've ever seen it. And I don't just it just doesn't feel the same well, this I, time. I think you could equally like include you know federal emergency response agencies in yeah. that list as well. I mean, the fact alone that like neighbors were pulling each other out of their homes, but also even after uh, the YMCA, the Jackie Robinson was, you know, leading efforts and helping people. Yeah. Um, you it was know, like a hodgepodge of these. Do, yeah. but. It was like a hodgepodge of these nonprofits or these these citizens that just stood up, and it's yeah. like providing hotel vouchers. Not mm-hmm. it's not. It wasn't even like they were providing toothpaste and clothing, which I think could probably fall in more of a typical category for nonprofit groups and community based organizations. But like they were literally handing out hotel. Vouchers. I mean, San Diego Unified itself has supplied hundreds of hotel yeah. vouchers for for families of its students yeah and and here you have the county and city like pointing at each other who's going to take over this job and what's gonna, this is just not the leadership that people expect especially after a catastrophe yeah it's just not it's it's a different um it's a different response now whether uh you know again it, uh, it's not to say that a lot hasn't happened or maybe even the best has happened but that's just not it's not meeting it's the not how people them. feel and people can feel a certain way, no matter what your efforts are. To the mayor's offices, um, one of their responses, they they acknowledged this lack of trust. So they weren't pretending like that didn't exist. They just, you know, wanted to be clear that there was context um, missing. A mm-hmm. uh, couple of other side notes uh, after in that conversation with uh, Chida Rebecca Warren Darby, who's running for that city council seat. Uh, her uh, opponent Henry Foster was very quick to support. When I talked to him, the sales tax increase, one cent sales tax increase that has been sort of moving its way through City Hall that would support all kinds of different um, priorities at the city and the Municipal Employees Association, the largest union of city employees, supports it. He jumped right aboard and they supported him in part because of that. Uh, she said, look, uh, the reason he got that support and I didn't is I didn't give a fast yes. I'm just not sure. I, I, in theory, I support it, but I really need to see the details. We're asking for a lot uh, at a moment when rents are high, SDG&E rates are high, water rates are high, and here we are saying you should pay more. I'm not quite sure where that's at with that, but I think she's just saying like, yeah, I get it. I'm in theory in support, not sure. She did get the endorsement of the Police Officers Association. Obviously, they've been very antagonistic to her, to the woman who represented that seat, Monica Montgomery Stepp, and her deputy, Henry Foster, um, they dropped uh, $5,000 into the race and and may do more to support uh, Chida uh, Warren Darby. And she said, you know, I, um, I don't hold any punches about who I am as a black woman and my experience as a black woman. Uh, and she talks about her, uh, her, her own experience not seeing community officers involved like they used to be in the community. Um, she said, quote, not every officer is bad, but people need to understand the traumas people experience with the police that can't be downplayed. And this was, uh, I think, directed sort of at me. I've been talking about how there's this divide 4-4 on the city council. It seems like there's four now supportive of Council President Sean Elo Rivera and four who are not. Uh, and as the mayor's sort of endorsed candidate, it's been assumed that she would support that uh, group against it, against him. Uh, And she wanted to make clear, quote, I'm not going to be a puppet of the mayor and I take offense to any suggestion like that. 
Um, she said, if the Sean Elo Rivera crew is working on something that is advantageous to constituents, I will go with it. If it's the other side, I'll go with that. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Are you looking to engage with regional decision makers, business leaders, elected officials, and industry professionals committed to improving downtown San Diego? Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership. As a member, you'll receive access to exclusive resources, exposure to special programming, networking functions, and additional opportunities unmatched by any other local membership-based organization. Join the driving forces behind the future of downtown San Diego. For a 10% discount, become a member today. So the last few years, we haven't had to have this conversation just because there was so much money coming in from COVID relief funds and such, but it's a very familiar conversation to me. San Diego Unified School District says there's a a massive deficit shortfall. This is the difference between the money they expect to come in over the next year and the money they expect to spend. Uh, Over the last few years, they've given very large, uh, at least comparative, Uh, pay increases. Uh, They're also dealing with a a decline in enrollment and those COVID relief funds that came from the state and the the federal government have dried up. And so all of that has led to a very big shortfall again between what they expect to come in and what they expect to spend. Now, this has often been the case where at least in, you know, 10 years ago when we dealt with these sort of deficits a lot that they had to, uh, you know, threaten uh, that this might happen. They might have to lay off teachers they actually warn teachers or tell them they're going to get laid off. And then they actually then they rescind that later. So this whole pattern I've seen a lot. But you got a quote that says this could be more real. Yeah. So there's there's been a lot of speculation about what what has is going to happen right this this next school year. Uh, back in June, um, the district uh, projected big big budget deficits for this coming school year and the school year after that. So twenty four twenty five and twenty five twenty six. Um, in those original June projections, they they said that the deficit could rise to about one hundred and eighty two million in the twenty five twenty six school year. Um, it, it looks like the district has started to shave off some of that deficit. Um, uh, they are now projecting um, about a seventy million dollar budget deficit in the twenty four twenty five school year, which is, um, I think, about half of what it, they originally projected. Um, they've done a whole lot to, you know, kind of work around the edges, whether it's kind of cut programs or or. Um, or uh, do little furloughs for people on weekends and before holidays. Um, but uh, this whole time, you know, there have been some officials and board members who've told me that they think that they can make this 
you know, budget game work without resorting to layoffs. Um, so back in June, when we, when we first spoke, um, uh, Richard Barrera, board member, told me that uh, if we quote, if we need to reduce staff to maintain some sort of ratios as enrollment and average daily attendance uh, decline, the district is very, very skilled at figuring out how to doing how to do that without laying people off. And so there was again this kind of confidence expressed that they were going to f- figure out how to do this, figure out how to shave off over a hundred million dollars uh, from their budget again because of this combined. Um, vice of of increased teacher pay decreased uh, enrollment and funding and and the loss of covid funds um but even at the time um cody Pedersen, who's now the vice president of the board uh w- struck a much more gloomy tone saying something like you know this is a a, a budget outlook that's going to mean that we need to sweat and um uh first but it was first spotted at the la jolla L- light uh last week um, during a cluster meeting for La Jolla High, the La Jolla High cluster, uh, Cody Pedersen was a lot more explicit and basically said, layoffs are coming. We don't know what exactly they're going to look like, but they are coming. So I got Cody on the phone on Tuesday, and he expanded a bit on that. He said again that they're not entirely sure exactly what those will look like. They're going to vote on numbers uh in the beginning of March and um, tomorrow, Friday, uh, there is going to be a budget meeting uh, where they go over a bunch of this stuff. But he said that his hope is that they can restrict the layoffs to only what's necessary uh, and hope he they hope that they will be able to preserve the jobs of as many people who are in front of students, so teachers, stuff like that, while um, turning more to layoffs of people like central office staff or support staff. Um, you know, he said that their hope is that they can cut some fat but not cut into the muscle. Um, and uh, so he said, quote, if you are a teacher and you are in front of students, those are the people least likely to receive a pink slip because we absolutely need those teachers. We'd like to uh, reduce layoffs to a minimum for frontline educators. So, again, we, we still don't really know exactly what this will look like. But um, given the fact that the vast majority of the districts sort of uh, the, the budget that they do have say over is in uh, salaries, we knew that this was most likely going to happen yeah. regardless of the confidence officials you You're know express a hundred million dollars without um affecting people there are a couple factors to yeah. always keep in mind with this one is they have to tell teachers by what march, march 15th if they're going to lay them off or yeah. eliminate their their jobs uh but that is obviously months before the budget has to be finalized so it always creates this you know, awful for them scenario where yeah, it creates this limbo where all of these people get pink slips and they don't really know until later on if the pink slip actually means that they've been laid off or if it's just if they send out too many. Right. The other structural issue that always comes up here is that the te- the school district essentially has a last in first out mm-hmm. policy, which means that this is based on seniority, which means that the newest educators or newest employees are the first to face the layoffs, Mm -hmm. which often has a disproportionate effect on some of the uh, underserved, most underserved historically communities where where some of these schools that have high turnover have very new teachers 
they get affected and have uh, a lot more turnover because of some of these layoffs than a place that has teachers who have been there for for decades. They're not going to get a pink slip. They're not going to see the turnover. The culture there is not going to be affected. And there's also this other sort of aspect to the layoffs, which is they aren't, let, let's say they, they have 10 positions for, you know, special ed teachers, right? In the mod severe classroom. If they only have five of those positions filled and they desperately need more, they aren't going to turn to layoff, you know, those right. special ed teachers. So they, they're, they're essentially looking for the places where maybe they're least short staffed and then cutting those positions, people in those positions based on seniority. Yeah. Schools has been a big topic for us the last couple of weeks. We released the newest edition of the Parents Guide to San Diego Schools. Good job, you two. Yeah, hey, yeah, yes. It was a lot of work, but it turned out well. <laughs> yes, it did. It's always I, a relief. I'm very proud of it. It looks great. All 700 plus schools from across the county are in there. Their vital statistics, uh, how many people are there, how they've performed on tests. And then, uh, and this is getting a lot of attention this year, is the exclusive metric that we created with UC San Diego mm-hmm. uh, and the researchers there. Great job, Georgia Kovacs and everybody who's worked on that. This is where um, Will Hunsbury came up with the idea a few years ago to like, look, okay, so we know that incomes matter when you look at test scores, mm-hmm. that, that you can you can look at a student's family's income and you can you can see that those are uh, sometimes if they have a low income that it, it corresponds to a lower test score. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have the same resources, the same opportunities for preschool, the same books around the house, the same nutritional stability, all kinds of stuff that, that contributes to that. So the idea is that when you look at the incomes, uh, you, can, um, you can project out based on all of the test scores where a school should be mm-hmm. or would not should be, but where um, it might be if it fell in line with that expectation, right? Yeah. And when you do that, you can map them all out and put on a scatter plot which ones are doing better and which ones are doing worse than that. If they're mm-hmm. doing better, then there's something special perhaps going on there. You compiled that this year. Uh, Jacob, you did a story, and it's getting some nationwide attention. People are calling from all across the country about you know how they can do something like that. Very proud of this creation that we have. Um, what has been the takeaway this year and, and, um, and the buzz about it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really, really great metric and, you know, uh, much props to well, as much as that pains me to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's, it's exactly what you said, right? We know that it is almost this kind of immutable law of nature that, that wealthier schools are going to score better on standardized tests than poor schools, poorer schools. Um, that's just kind of how it shakes out, right? So in an effort to determine the real value of schools within those sorts of constrained factors, right, we we created this metric and, and it allows us to see which schools are kind of overperforming where we would imagine they would be and which schools are underperforming. And every year there are kind of new standouts, but but one of the thing that, things that's been most incredible is for every year that we've done this, there have also been uh, similar standouts, right? And and I'm currently working on a story about one of those standouts, Edison Elementary, that that Will visited all those years ago when just before we um, first launched uh, this metric. And it's it's an example of a school that has built a, a culture um, around uh, excellence, and and it's incredible to see that they are, you know, still 
uh, at the top of, of this metric, right? And, and what's so fascinating is that they've actually gotten better. You know, back when Will first covered this, um, of the 700-something schools that we, you know, put plugged into this metric, they had the fourth highest score on our, men, uh, our income test score metric. And, and this year they are, have the highest score. Um, which again is, is incredible. And it, and it goes to show that there are schools that are figuring out how to, you know, kind of, uh, close this achievement gap and, and do, do right by students who may not have the same opportunities as other kids, but it, it's not easy. And, and, and it, they're, they can sometimes be few and far in between. Yeah. Well, we're going to go around town and, uh, talk about all of these, uh, issues and kind of give a, a guide to the guide. Uh, I enjoy these meetings, and um, we've been on a couple, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah, they're always fun, honestly. Yeah, so uh, come on and join us. You can you can see the guide. You can see where to pick up a paper copy of it, and you can see all the stories and data at vosd.org/schools. That's where you can find a list of these workshops coming up as well. vosd.org/schools. Yeah, RSVP. Make make sure you come say hi. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego that has a great guide to all 700 plus San Diego schools. You can see all of that data at vosd.org schools. That's vosd.org schools. We are the most popular public affairs podcast that has that. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is our Managing Editor. Jacob McQuinney is our Education Reporter. Nate Johns, our Producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>